Good morning. My name is Tess. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading, I'll be reading selection, selected verses from chapters 12 and 13 in the New International Version. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. The way of the fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not respond to rebukes. One person pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Whoever scorns instruction will pay for it, but whoever respects a command is rewarded. Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffer harm. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Thank you for gathering together as a community this morning. We are in the book of Proverbs in a sermon series titled Life Pro Tip. And the title of today's talk is Don't Be Stupid. How many of you are stupid? Just kidding. Um, we'll get to the title in a little bit. Uh, but I really like this title. I struggled with it for a little bit, but I like it now. Uh, my, my family and I, uh, almost all of us anyways, we left our oldest one here in Seattle. But uh, we've been away for about three weeks. The first two weeks, we were um, on vacation. And then the third week, we were, uh, I was speaking at a conference, a week-long conference. I want to share a little bit about those three weeks as we start here. The first week, about seven and a half days, my family and I, we were in New York City. And New York City is where I grew up. New York City is where I have my parents. And my oldest sister still lives there with her five children and her husband. And it so happened that one of my sisters who lives in San Francisco, I have two that live there, uh, were able to visit also. And so most of the family was together. And the predominant experience that Susie and I had during our uh, week in New York was one of feeling incredibly loved and received. I don't know what it's like for you when you are hosting, but, you know, I can do my part and kind of put on a show for a couple of days. But, you know, the saying, guests are like fish, right? goes bad after a few days. Uh, but it was five of us in New York City where there isn't a square inch to spare. And it just felt like people were incredibly generous. They stopped their life. They sacrificed. They gave up bedrooms and beds and their schedules and their normal rhythm. And they just turned towards us and paid attention to us, inquired about our life and our soul. 
and they bought us meals and took us to places and just took us on. And it felt incredibly humbling to receive in that way. Felt really affirmed and admired and believed in. And it was an experience of intimacy and connection. And you just feel reaffirmed. You know, you sort of get into your roots again. And then you get the nourishment that you can only get from the roots. From people who know you deeply and for a long time. So it was a great gift to be loved in that way from both family and friends. And then uh, the second week, uh, we went up to Vermont. It's sort of the uh, opposite of here. It's the Northeast Kingdom, they call it, and it's 20 minutes south of the Canadian border. And we went to be with our mentor, Grammy Gwen. And we celebrated uh, 22 years of uh, being with Gwen. It was exactly that week, 22 years ago, that I was first there. And I went up to Vermont with a church group, with the first church that I was ever starting. And we just wanted to get away from the city and find a rural place, and rural it is. And uh, I also was bringing with me lots of doubts about whether I should marry this uh, girl named Susie or not. And uh, I went there 51% ready to not marry her. And then Gwen and I, I didn't even know she was a Christian. We knelt down together in her home, in her boiler room, because all the rooms were taken, uh, and just prayed. And she cried with me, and she entered into that emotional space with me. And as soon as we opened our eyes, I knew that Susie and I were going to get married. It was a done deal. And uh, she's going to be 87 in November. And so uh, we were having to face some reality there as well. But it was incredible how much love she poured on us, me and Susie and our family. And then for the third week, we were in New Hampshire and that's where the conference was that I was speaking at uh, every day for a week. And there were about 200 people there on this little lake called Lake Swansea. It's uh, the equivalent of Camp Cascades on the East Coast. And 200 people there, but 100 of them, half of the group, turned out to be from a church called High Rock Covenant Church. And High Rock is the church that I planted in 1999. But they have 10 campuses now. They're a huge mega church. And so I'm so, I was so tickled to be with this group. And they don't know me by, uh, at all. They only had heard of me, this guy named Peter who started High Rock in 1999. So I was sort of a mythic creature. And so many people are like, wait, you exist? You're that Peter? It was so fun to interact with people and swap stories. And um, there was this one moment where we're just gathered on the beach of the lake, and a bunch of them were just, somehow we were talking, and I got a chance to tell the actual origin story of High Rock, because they all had heard the telephone charades version of it, and it was totally different than what actually happened. So it was really fun to uh, have that experience, and I felt really affirmed. And um, I think I was a gift. I think I added value to that uh, experience for them uh, and for the, all the people there, and they invited me back to speak again for a week next summer, 
And they invited me also to be the speaker at their annual fundraising dinner, which is a great honor because that evening is very important to them. And so I experienced a lot of love uh, during these last three weeks. And I have to tell you, it was very special. It was very good. But I want to ask you this. Is all love felt, experienced as pleasant? When somebody loves you, is it always pleasant? If you were in charge of loving someone, will they always experience the intent of your love as pleasant? So imagine you are a parent of a two and a half year old boy. Will that two and a half year old boy always experience your love, 100% love, as pleasant? And the answer, of course, is no. I would say that love, by definition, is confrontational. So even something as mild as you asking somebody if they're thirsty, if they would like a glass of water, of course, that's a love offering on your part to inquire about their thirst. But it's a confrontation. You're making some assumptions. You're disclosing yourself. You're saying, I observe that you look thirsty. You might be thirsty. You've walked a mile, or it's hot outside, or, or your mouth looks dry. Right? But it's a confrontation of sorts. But that's a mild version of that. What love does, by definition, is it confronts the thing that's getting in the way of love. If something is in the way of their ability to experience your love, you got to address it. Or if something is in the way of their ability to be a loving person, true love will confront it. That's love's job. And if you don't do that, you are not being loving. And everybody who's tried to love anyone knows this. That your love, as loving as it may be, is often not experienced as pleasant. And this is what today's text is telling us. That your ability to discern, to understand, and to believe in your heart that the unpleasantness in your life, and I would say whether you brought it on yourself or somebody is bringing it upon you or life is just that way, however way you experience unpleasantness in your life, your ability to understand that that is being used by God to be loving to you is what's called wisdom. And your inability to understand that as love is what the scripture calls stupid. It's very plain here. If you don't know that love includes discipline, you're stupid. Have you seen parents like this? Parents who don't know how to understand the role, the place of discipline in, in parenting? Have you seen parents be passive and avoidant, not understanding that love by definition is confrontational? It's extremely frustrating to be around parents like that. So that's what we want to explore today, this idea 
that love is discipline. Um, our culture makes it hard, I think, for us to understand this. Uh, one way to describe our culture is that it's avoidant. We don't want to step on people's toes. We'd rather not have the hard conversation. Right? Uh, it's also individualistic. We get to be our own authorities. Nobody has a right to actually confront anyone. It's also consumeristic, meaning we are always seeking convenience and comfort. This is the set of values that so much define our culture today. But this framework doesn't allow us to understand love as confrontational, love as discipline. We have lots of ways to understand what love is in the culture, but it doesn't allow us to experience it as discipline. Because if something is uncomfortable, we'll sort of just opt out of it. We're not commitment-oriented. We don't stay. We leave. We don't confront. We avoid. If something doesn't feel good, we believe it is not good. That's what we've been taught. Is there room for love as discipline? And when is the last time you felt disciplined or rebuked or exhorted or confronted by someone who loves you? Proverbs chapters 12 to 13 tells us not to be stupid. And if you miss this aspect of love, you are being stupid. Anybody know what the Dunning-Kruger effect is? Anyone in the room know what this is? There was not one hand in the first service. Is there a hand? You just Googled it, right? Oh, no, you were here the first service? Okay, no good. <laughs> uh, in fact, I had talked about this in an earlier sermon a few years ago, uh, but I had to look it up again because I forgot. But here's the definition. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias. A, a cognitive bias is something that your brain is keeping you from actually perceiving reality accurately. Okay? A cognitive bias in which people mistakenly assess their cognitive ability as greater than it is. You think you're smarter than you are. You think you know more than you are. You think you're more able than you are. It is related to the cognitive biases of illusory superiority and comes from the inability of people to recognize their lack of ability. Did you catch that? Inability to recognize their lack of ability. Uh, maybe a simpler way to say that is you don't know what you don't know. And you know that's just, it just has to be true because as soon as you know what you don't know, now you know it. You can know that you don't know, but you can't know what you don't know. You know? <laughs> uh, interesting little rabbit trail on this. As I was, uh, I, I went further down the rabbit trail on this and learned that uh, when they did the survey of college students coming out of exams and asked them how they think they did on this particular test, they found that the, the students who scored a D on this exam 
rated themselves the highest. They were, uh, in fact, uh, expressing the most cognitive bias uh, that we just named as the Dunner-Kruger effect. So people who score A, B, or C, or F kind of know where they're at, but people who score Ds, they really think they're something. <laughs> you know? So if you think you're doing well, you have a D, is basically uh, what the research shows. Do you think that you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that he is really in your life, that he cares about you, that he's watching over you, that he's been walking with you your whole life, you've never been alone? How do you know that he will be faithful, that his promises are true, that his word is light onto your path? How do you know this? That he provides for you, that he guides you, that he is in you. How do you know? One of the primary ways that the Bible invites us to know God's love is through discipline. Don't suffer from the Dunning-Kruger effect and think you know until you come to understand that one of the primary ways God speaks to us is through things that feel unpleasant. I want to give you a working definition of faith. Faith is believing that God's love is pervasive. That there's a lot of weather coming at us, wind and rain. There's a lot of hardship. There is pain. There's injustice. There's discomfort, unpleasantness that is a part of our life. It's true. Life is difficult. Faith is believing, though, that through all of it, God is figuring out a way to love you precisely as he means to love you. That nothing is able to thwart his love for you. You hear this phrase all the time in culture. You hear, everything happens for a reason. I really disagree with that phrase. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. Everything happens, period. Good things happen, bad things happen, orderly things happen, chaotic things happen, just things happen, unjust things happen, catastrophes, tragedies. Life is hard in that way. But what we believe is that there is a God who is powerful and wise and loving. And you combine those two things, power, wisdom, and love, is somehow able to use all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not to believe that everything is good. No, everything is not good. In fact, I would argue most things are bad. You cannot believe that everything happens for a reason. In fact, most things happen with no reason whatsoever. It's unseeing of you. It's not intelligent or loving or powerful. It does not see you or care about you. There's a brutality and a violence to nature. I was in the ocean in New York, went to uh, Fire Island Beach there. It's got real waves, unlike Lake Washington, right? 
And I'm telling you, I fell over many times, and I can testify, nature does not see me, nor does it care. And yet, and yet I believe that God's love is pervasive, that it is intelligent, that it is able to somehow find me in the elements, through the storm, and use everything, orchestrate everything in such a way that it works for my good and to his glory. This is what it means to believe in God. That he's not punishing you. That life isn't just happening to you. That you're not just a victim. That somehow God wins. There's an economy of God at play all the time. And in God's economy, good is somehow pulled out of bad. That's what faith is. I want to give you some verses that I think really make this point. Revelations 3.19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Do you think this is true? Do you believe that if love, then rebuke? If love, then discipline? And it's easy to test the veracity of this in your own life, right? Anecdotally speaking, Has anyone ever truly loved you without confronting you? Love will contradict you. That's the job of love, to contradict. Have you ever seen a good parent who did not exercise rebuke and discipline? And so we know this is true. If this is true of human beings who are sinners, who are imperfect, whose love is imperfect, how much more true the logic builds for God who is perfect, whose love is perfect. And so we have Hebrews chapter 12. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And then you all think in your mind, of course he does. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Parenthetical comment here. Uh, In the scriptures, often the word son is used when it actually means all children. But the reason it uses the word son is to uh, emphasize the culture of primogeniture, which meant that the heir was always the eldest son. Right? And so the writer of Hebrews is making the point about legitimacy of the love of the father towards the child who in that culture is the eldest son. And so in our context, to accurately translate it into our culture, we would say sons and daughters. So all male or female, you should feel included in this verse when it says son. Verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? But if you are not disciplined, then everyone undergoes discipline. Then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God is training us through the hardships of life, 
through the unpleasantness of life, to experience the legitimacy of our sonship. God proves to us he loves us by the pain we experience in life. Think about that. In order to believe that, you have to believe he's actually in control above and beyond the chaos of suffering in our world. That somehow his love is actually pervasive. God's love is not equal to the suffering. It's not less than the suffering. It's greater than the suffering. It overpowers the suffering. It uses the suffering. It has lordship over the suffering so that he can use it precisely as he means to in your individual life and in our lives collectively. And all of history is being moved forward through the discipline of God's love. You believing this is your experience of God's love. Job chapter 5 verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Now you know this to be true on a human level. So the same hand that you maybe as a parent are using to stroke your child's head, to comfort your child as he or she falls asleep, is the same hand that might spank his bottom the next day. That's the nature of love. It never stops being loving. It's the same love that strokes the head that also spanks the bottom. And that's all Job is saying here. And if you are experiencing that, blessed are you. You are experiencing love. And I know that because of the Dunning-Kruger effect happening in me, I think I know better than what I actually should know. So I mistakenly misinterpret that to be hatred rather than love. And so I start despising the discipline of the Almighty. When in fact, I should understand that as love. I think this is my favorite verse in today's set. Deuteronomy 8.5 says this. Know then in your heart. That as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Find me a verse in scripture where God disciplines as an act of hate. There's a coupling in scripture. Discipline and love are always coupled. And We have to know this in our hearts, like in our hearts. Like life is happening on some level. We have thoughts on some level. But at at the center of it, at the very, very core of it, we know, we know, and we know that God loves us. Somehow God's love is going to triumph. His economy is going to win. You have to believe this fact that God loves you. You guys, if you know me, you know I'm a a cognitively bent person. I'm a skeptic. I'm analytical. I, I just, God made me that way. I don't know how to not be that way. But I have come to understand that my brain is not always reliable. 
that there, there are these moments of experience when I, that, that cause my brain to come to a certain conclusion, and that conclusion is just wrong. I believe I know more than I know. And sometimes my heart knows more than my brain. And I don't want to be the Christian that says suspend thinking or throw your brain out. That's, I believe, the opposite of that. If God made a brain, it has to be part of our faith. Yes, absolutely. But I'm also telling you at the same time that sometimes your brain is just wrong. And your heart knows better than your brain. There's kind of a gap. And somehow, somehow, you got to find a way to bridge this gap. Here's a simple example. Uh, I've been trying to eat more broccoli lately. It's a whole new thing. I just, I just turned 46 years old last week, Right? And it's taken me 46 years to come to realize I should eat more cruciferous vegetables. But, like, the way that thing looks, it's so ugly. It just looks like a tumor. Just all those dots. It's not even like a beautiful leafy situation. It's just these tumorous little circles. And then I got to put that thing in my mouth. It's always too big. It's never cooked right. It's either too mushy or too hard. And then I'm chewing this thing and waiting for it to start tasting good. It never tastes good. And then I'm just reaching for the thing that's going to help me wash it down. Yet, somehow, somehow, that's good for me. Now, when I put a piece of chocolate in my mouth, there's an immediate reward. My brain tells me, this is it. Eat more of this. I like this. And Peter, you need this. This is what you were meant for, created for. Why would God have you eat anything other than this thing in your mouth right now? It's true. Science proves it. Our body rewards us, right, when we eat chocolate. And yet, about 10 days later, I feel so much better if I eat broccoli than I do if I eat chocolate. So there's this gap. And what's going to bridge this gap? It's your heart. Know in your heart. Even if your brain tells you, this tastes terrible, go eat that other thing. You go, know in your heart. Know in your heart. Know in your heart. Bridge the gap. Because soon something will end. The suffering will end. The unpleasantness, the pain will end. It has a season. And then you will know that you will have come out as a different person somehow. You will have been on the receiving end of some nutritious thing. Know in your heart. Uh, There's some verses about self-discipline too. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will, not last, that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Self-discipline is not just a matter of me exercising my will. 
But it's me believing in my heart, knowing in my heart that whatever is unpleasant for the moment is good, so I will stay, I will choose, I will keep going. That's self-discipline. And that discipline finds its strength in the heart. Know in your heart that God loves you. I want to uh, close with this story. Uh, broken open is a phrase that I've reconnected with recently. Uh, many years ago, I read this book, and I forgot about this section, but Parker Palmer, if you ever know Parker Palmer, uh, he wrote this book called A Hidden Wholeness. And in the, I think it's the center of the book, really, uh, mentions this phrase, broken open. And he says that the world, the, li- the, the life you live will throw at you everything. And it's going to break you. Being broken and being broken open, though, he says, are two different things. When life breaks you, it will scatter your heart. But when God uses that brokenness as discipline in your life, he doesn't scatter your heart, but he breaks it open. And breaking open is different in that it increases the heart's capacity for love and truth and action. I can't think of anything else in life that can do what only hardship can do. There's nothing else in life that can only do what discipline, rebuke, confrontation can do. Suffering has a role to play in the master surgeon's hands. It has a job to do. And God says, my love, my power, and my wisdom will make sure will make sure that it's used for good in your life. And believing that, that God's love is pervasive, that is faith. I don't know what you all are going through, what you've been through, but somehow I can repeat to you the promise of God that I hear in my heart. That he will not, he will not cause it to destroy you but he will use it to break you open, to increase your capacity. I, uh, Susie and I, you know, August is a big month for the Sung family. We have uh, three birthdays and two anniversaries. Uh, today is my coming to America anniversary. We came in 1981 on this day. Uh, two days ago, uh, Susie and my wedding anniversary last week, uh, we had Mia's birthday, and then week before my birthday, and the next week is Sophia's birthday. It's a big month. And so there's a uh, kind of a natural invitation for us to take inventory in August. And Susie and I were talking about our relationship, and uh, it's just incredible, everything we've been through. You know, two years ago uh, in Spokane, I believe that God started a revival in my life, a personal revival. And I'm amazed at the way that revival is continuing in my life today to this very moment. The way God is using the last two years to break me open. And Susie and I, we were taking inventory of our relationship. And I said to her, I said, Susie, you know, we've been married 22 years. And I can't think of a time in our 22 years 
when I've liked that relationship more than I do today. We've broken through some really stubborn uh, dynamics and uh, worked through some really hard family of origin issues. And I really love you more today and like our relationship more than ever. She said, Peter, I feel the exact same way. We really meant it. It's all the gift we needed for a 22-year anniversary. And I think about my character. I think about my spiritual life. Like, I really believe in God today. You know, I'm a skeptic, I'm a doubter, and most of that was spent as a pastor. That's hard. I stand before you and say, I believe in God more than I ever have. I can't believe I'm saying that. I feel ridiculous saying that. But that's God breaking me open. I really like my working identity. You know, I've wrestled so much with my working identity, and today I feel peace about it. I don't know what God has to do in your life to break you open. But if he loves you, he will. And if you let him, he will. So as we close here, our prayer today, I want to do something. I want to invite you to keep your eyes open and read along with me on the screen the verses that were read for us today. I want you to read it and feel it in your heart and know it in your mind through the lens of love. If God loves you, every verse is true. So pray and read along with me now. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not respond to rebukes. One person pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Whoever scorns instruction will pay for it, but whoever respects a command is rewarded. Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Receive God's love in Jesus' name. Amen.